This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the March edition of The Compliance Live. This month, I'm featuring Audrey Harris. Audrey is a managing director at Affiliated Monitors. Audrey has one of the most interesting careers in compliance, having begun just after the turn of the century in private practice investigating FCPA cases, working as a chief compliance officer at an international company, going back into private practice, and now taking all of that knowledge to affiliated monitors to help companies build out compliance programs. In this episode, Audrey moves back into private practice. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Audrey Harris on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with another episode of The Compliance Life with Audrey Harris, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. Today, we're going to turn to Audrey's post-CCO career and perhaps explore what are some of the things she learned as a CCO that she has taken into or she took into private practice. So, Audrey, first of all, with an incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome back. Thank you so much. I think, Audrey, one of your experiences was, was similar to mine when I first went in-house, which is we don't need no stinking memo. We need you to pick up the phone and answer the question, and then we'll be on our way. Um, maybe an email, but really not. So um, how did you learn to navigate that? Absolutely. Well, I will say that even so much so that um, kind of on my theme of never say never, uh, when I finished my term as CCO, I thought I would actually go in-house someplace else. I mean, crazy. I loved it. You know, the impact that you can have in-house um, and the the building teams and it's just crazy. Loved it. However, I saw what I think was a need. Um, and especially in dealing with external counsel, and I'll tell you, I had the absolute best um, when I was in-house external counsel. Loved everyone I worked with. Um However, I did see a real need for how, um, or actually I should say white space, um, and how law firms were delivering um, to me in-house. And one of them was exactly what you said, which is, I'll call them memos that only lawyers can love, okay? And because I won't be mean to just lawyers, but also, you know, we've got to get some love for the accountants there in the big four. Um, I would have memos that only lawyers could love, and I'd have Excel spreadsheets that represent um, rabbit holes that the big four could not help but go down, right? So those were my two kind of experiences. Um, and when I came back to private, saw the opportunity to come back to private practice, it was really to fill that hole, do things a little bit differently. You know, don't send me memos that make my life harder. Um, think about me as 
you know, the one making the decisions here. Um, what I'll call those law school memos of issue spotting and both sides of every equation, super not helpful when you're sitting in that seat, um, putting that bottom line first, right up top, you know, don't make me, as I would say, go fish for it um, and find the answer buried in some long thing. I don't have the time. Um, so how I structured and provided advice to clients drastically changed, um, I would say, after being in-house. Um, I was always thinking about in the, the external counsel that were just so high value to me were the ones that could deliver me back bottom lines in bullets that I could cut and paste. Um, realize that that memo may be great that I read, but that I'm reporting to my in-house, to my internal client with, you know, actions to do. So those bullets you can cut and paste, that PowerPoint form, so very important. Um, the other one I would say is that, that a real big learning for me, and we talk about this in compliance all the time, are things like pillars and collateral risk, right? So you have all these different subject matters going on in compliance, um, and it's so important that they're not pillared. Um, because they can actually create collateral risk for you. So are law firms. Um, so when I was sitting on the in-house side, I could really see that law firms would think about things in very pillars. Let me give you the anti-corruption answer, the trade sanction answer, the competition answer. And they weren't thinking about, um, as a global company, we are actually, you know, is if we do this, um, is it gonna have an impact on competition regulation here? Um, if we do this here under this particular um, jurisdiction's law, is that going to be um, or have any impact on how we're doing it and whether or not we're in compliance with another jurisdiction's um, requirements? That those pillars were really, I think I noticed them more being in-house and noticed those pillars in those law firms. And one of the first things I really thought about doing and working with my partners to do is pull those down within the law firm and really give the global integrated and holistic responses, um, which is which is a tough thing to do. But I will say that's where companies are in front of law firms in that area, is they're already thinking in that holistic risk, holistic non-financial risk space. They're thinking about social license to operate. Um, and historically, I'll also say, that they're much better at operationalizing compliance than law firms, um, where law firms try to think about, here's the law. I was dying for someone to say, here's the law and here's how it applies um, in a control framework for your business model, right? And that's something, uh, again, that uh, the law firms, you know, when I came back, that's how I started thinking. Practical please, and could you please speak in-house. I was really intrigued by your thoughts on collateral risk. And is that something that we could tie into a broader risk assessment? Is that something that you feel like you need specialized knowledge on? Because, uh, for instance, this morning, I interviewed someone who talked about revenue risk management, and he used the same strategies that we would use, which is a risk assessment. And then, of course, managing the, your risk based upon your risk assessment. Were you able to use that strategy and tactic in a variety of uh, what are seen as typically non-compliance functions within an organization? Absolutely. Um, so I will say huge in-house learning for me 
is looking at risk assessments and having, when you, when you even talked about risk assessments, you may be focusing on say anti-corruption for one of them, but to have different um, and divergent thinking in that room, not just expertise, but having business be part of it and having other functions, legal, audit, um, you know, supply chain in those discussions and thinking about, and when you've been talking about legal compliance, having across those different subject matters, um, moving from just thinking about it in anti-corruption and competition and trade sanction controls to having all those folks in the room, the value add on your um, risk assessments in that space go drastically up um, and you actually build some real efficiency in that space. One of the great areas in doing that, especially as an external then, um, was in new market entry risk assessments and things for clients, um, where clients are looking at going into, or companies are looking into going into a new market, um, whether that be a new business line or a new jurisdiction, um, and helping them uh, you know, in a global, integrated, and holistic way to look at what are all the different risks, particularly in the, in the non-financial risk categories, that we should be thinking about in this space proactively and how do we factor those into our strategy? Um, just like we would factor in financial risks of, um, you know, or, or even financial simple things like facilities, um, you know, factor into the financial cost of a facility in moving into a new jurisdiction. What about factoring in those mitigation for all those different non-financial risks? And most importantly, how can you do those together? Um, a lot of non-financial risks, what we, what I found is that they actually have a lot of the same drivers, right? And they actually have some of the same control features that you can leverage in that space. So really thinking about mapping um, your business models and your controls, aligning them and leveraging them um, in that from risk assessment through monitoring on a compliance program became a huge learning for me um, and something that I really took out um, to the external um, you know, application uh, when I came back to private practice. Audrey, the, uh, if I could maybe characterize the first phase of your private practice career was FCPA investigations, uh, FCPA violations, perhaps negotiating with the government, but FCPA resolutions. And it seems in this second phase, it was more geared towards compliance. And what I wanted to use that as a way to introduce, did you uh, see or hear an evolution from clients into understanding uh, this is not just a legal violation, but this can be a true bis business value add, or uh, they were coming to you not when the whistleblower report had come in or the subpoena had been delivered, but they were coming to you really uh, to utilize your skills on a proactive basis so that they saw compliance as the answer, not simply responding to a legal violation? Absolutely. Um, and that is something that I said that I think where companies um, are, it, we're actually above law firms in that space. So coming back and being able to talk about that holistic risk and making these risk assessments and proactive reviews actually enablers for business, a way to not only protect stakeholders, but to actually grow business um, by able to going into a new market. Um, with less risk, being able to look around corners, um, huge thing, obviously very big when I was in-house. I don't think any board will ask you, um, can, can we defend uh, XYZ if we get in trouble? They want to know, how do you prevent that from happening, right? 
um, and boards are more active in that space now. And I think the number one phrase that you, that I heard in coming back to private practice was, can you help me see around that corner to what's next in emerging risks? So something else that really spent um, a lot of time doing in-house that I applied um, as an action for returning to private practice was, can you use all of this data and information on compliance to really start thinking about and planning for mitigating emerging risks, um, whether or not it's looking at trends in anti-corruption um, and looking at your anti-corruption program to really leverage um, for human rights and supply chain requirements that are coming down the road. Um, but yes, way more holistic pull um, was what I was seeing from my clients and the types of requests that were coming in really focused on that again and seeing that as we talked about, I think in our first time together, commercial case uh, for compliance in this area, but it is global, it is across subject matters, um, and it is really integrated in the way that this Now let me turn to an external party being the Department of Justice. In this second phase of your private practice career, we, uh, by this time, we had the first FCPA resource guide in 2012, but then we started having other uh, releases of information, such as the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Of course, that was updated as well. We had a second edition of the FCPA resource guide. In this second phase of your private practice career, did you also see really an evolution in the department's thinking and becoming more sophisticated in not only what it expected, uh, from a compliance program, but also articulating that to to us, the general public as well. Absolutely. I mean, the sophistication is on a, a, a very high curve um, and it has been really accelerated. Um, and it was actually one of the, I was, I was interviewed in different contexts, roundtables and with the OECD and other things about Australia's um, anti-corruption enforcement regime. And um, one of my surprises in that, as I was talking to them, is how, how much they think the U.S.'s program has always been like this. <laughs> um, and um, really knowing that you know, the statute passed in 70, you know, 77, but if you really look at the maturity curve of enforcement in these areas, it has been on a rocket ship for, you know, obviously since 2004 to 2010, but really past 2010 to now, which isn't that long of a time period. Um, the sophistication in what you present um, to DOJ, what you present to the SEC, and other agencies. Um, so you really see that guidance on effective compliance program being, um, you know, mirrored in other and agencies, and you see them working together not only globally but cross agency within the U.S. in that space. Um, but absolutely, their expectations have increased, and we can see that in the guidance. We can even see it in some of the small little changes um, that happened, you know, in the updates in, in, in 2020, for example, um, including, you know, instead of asking for or saying you need an effective compliance program, they're changing the words just a little bit to say you're resourced and empowered, right? Um, they're looking at metrics. Um, they're expecting more than a paper program when you're walking in the door. Um, and they have folks with in-house and monitorship experience um, you know, sitting there who are able to do that benchmarking internally and feel, huh, what's the levity of this program? Um, is this a paper program or is this something that's embedded into the culture of a company? 
So, Audrey, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our fourth and final episode where we take a look at your move to AMI. And I really am intrigued with your thoughts on how and why a monitorship can be such a powerful tool. So I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks so much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.